Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, promises to help the bottom line and the planet at the same time. Is it too good to be true? Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of an episode digging into that very question. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Tomorrow marks the first day of the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC. It's the most prominent annual gathering of American conservatives, but it's not happening here in the U.S. This year, CPAC is taking place in Budapest, Hungary, marking the first time in its nearly 50-year run that the conference is being held in Europe, and only the fifth time it's being held internationally. And why Hungary? The key to that question and CPAC's keynote speaker this year, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. He's the far-right leader who has transformed Hungarian politics with his longtime support of Russian President Vladimir Putin, successful implementation of an anti-immigration conservative agenda. He's also deeply admired by prominent American Republicans like Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson. Orban isn't admired by all Republicans, though. Al Cardenas, former chairman of the American Conservative Union, which organizes the CPAC conference, told Reuters that CPAC's embrace of Orban was troubling, saying, quote, Orban is no friend of democratic nations. And yet this year, CPAC is in Budapest and will be celebrating Viktor Orban. So what lessons from Orban's playbook might American conservatives bring back to the United States? Well, that's the very question we asked last year in a series of shows we broadcast when it first became clear that an influential faction of American conservatives were swooning for Orban. With CPAC kicking off tomorrow in Budapest, we offer one of those hours to you again. And here it is. There's a pattern out there. It seems that each week, more political scientists and historians say that U.S. democracy is under threat. And that if you want to see what might happen next in this country, look to what's happening now in Hungary. Democracy scholar Lee Drutman has been writing extensively about this. He recently published an analysis that found that American democracy behaves more like that of the authoritarian systems now found in Turkey and Hungary than it does in democracies found in Canada and Australia. So today, we want to scrutinize this pattern to explore deeply what's happening in the European nation of Hungary, to its democracy and its people, and to examine how it's similar to and different from the United States. What do Americans need to learn from Hungary's march to authoritarianism? We'll start with Marta Pardavi. She leads a human rights organization in Hungary's capital, Budapest. It's called the Hungarian Helsinki Committee. Recall that Hungary was under communist control for almost 50 years in the second half of the 20th century. Marta remembers the sense of hope in her country in the heady years after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, when Hungary transitioned to a multi-party democracy. In the middle of the 90s, it was a completely different era, obviously. It was um, just five years before that that the country had its first free elections. And it was on a very um, determined road to building a democracy. Marta says that being a human rights lawyer in the 1990s meant she was at the vanguard of a nation's effort to free itself from the shackles of history. It was great to see that a human rights organization can actually affect change, that civil society has a space to operate, more access to policymakers. We could have very often tough disagreements, but still have a dialogue with them. And so I think it was a very hopeful period. I think we got an appreciation really firsthand on, about how freedom guarantees, I'd say, safety. Fast forward to 30 years on, things are very different. Today in 2021, we see how the basic fundamental pillars of that democracy are crumbling. My organization has been particularly in the crosshairs of the Hungarian government. Very often, my colleagues and I, over the past five, six years, have found ourselves personally named and slandered in what I consider purely propaganda outlets that are ultimately financed 
by my own tax payments. All my colleagues and myself too were included in a list of 200 names, people who work in academia, who work as researchers, who work as civil society activists, journalists. The article said that we're all on the payroll of George Soros, that we're mercenaries of George Soros, basically undermining Hungary. This policy of creating and fueling hatred against certain social groups, individuals, is certainly something that I thought we would not see in a democracy. I think it's quite well known around the world that in 1956, over 200,000 Hungarians fled communism. They sought refuge and were received as refugees in a matter of a few weeks. The 200,000 people who left Hungary for political reasons in 1956 were also then followed by tens of thousands of people who left until the political changes took place in 1989. So you'd think everybody knows somebody, everybody has a family member who had to flee and who, who migrated for political reasons, for love, to study or to work elsewhere. Still, today, Hungary is a place where it's very, very difficult to even raise the idea that refugees coming to Europe, seeking protection from war and trauma, are similar to these Hungarian refugees who fled in 1956. The idea that refugees should be protected, that they are human beings with human dignity and rights under Hungarian law and also international law, has become so tainted in Hungary that it's become really difficult to even raise the idea that 1956 Hungarian refugees share similarities with people fleeing Syria or Afghanistan or other wars around the world. We are not being persecuted in the sense that happens in, in Russia or Belarus or Turkey or Azerbaijan or Egypt or China. Certainly this is a, an EU member state and therefore the tools that an EU member state government uses to suppress are more in the form of legislative measures meant to stifle civil society organizations. So I'm outraged that in the EU in 2021, we have situations where people might feel that if they speak out against a government measure, against government-fueled hatred, they might face risks or repercussions in their personal or professional lives. This chilling effect is felt not only in Hungary, but it's also felt in other countries around Europe not everywhere and not to the same extent, but it's growing. This is a, a disease of democracy that the European Union seems to be unable to really effectively address, and it's happening within the EU. Marta Pardavi. She leads a human rights organization in Budapest called the Hungarian Helsinki Committee. Well, joining us now is Kim Shepley, professor of sociology and international affairs at Princeton University. She's lived in and visited Hungary for many years, even worked on the Hungarian Constitutional Court in the 1990s. She's author of the forthcoming book, The Frankenstate, How Orban Undermined Democracy and Provided a Model for the World. Professor Shepley, welcome to you. Thanks for having me on the show. Also with us today, On Point News analyst Jack Beatty. Jack, good to have you. Hello, Megna. Hello, Kim. Uh, Jack, I actually want to start with you um, and just get your, your brief first reflections on um, even the fact that we're asking this question about are there similarities between the state of American democracy and Hungary's march towards authoritarianism? Well, I came across this quote from Viktor Orban in a 2015 speech to uh, party thinkers. And, and the quote just seemed to me to be, if you substituted for, for Hungary, America, you would have the motive of Trumpism. He said, Hungary has the right and every nation has the right to say that it does not want its country to change. I think that impulse is right at the center of Trump 
of the Trump inspiration of the Republican Party, of the, its version of it. And it's, an, it's a direct reaction, even in the language, to President Obama, who said, you know, change is here. Mm. You are the change you've been waiting for. And we hear it at the echo of uh, Tucker Carlson's replacement theory. You know, every immigrant who comes replaces me in the electorate, knocks the white people further down and, and privileges uh, newcomers with no stakes in this country. And what's striking of that sentiment of we do not want the country to change, what's striking about that is how un-American it is. Mm -hmm. George Santayana, I think, quite rightly said, the only indigenous American religious faith is belief in tomorrow. Mm. For many people in the Republican Party, that belief has disappeared. It's been replaced by cultural despair. And Hungary, I think, shows the political model that that can lead to and that perhaps is happening every day in this country as more and more people say, I do not want the country to change. Mm. Well, Kim Shepley, we're just about a minute and a half off from our first break here, but I would love to hear your initial thoughts about Viktor Orban in Hungary and, if I might say, you know, keying off what Jack said, uh, the Republican Party here in the United States as it consolidates around Trumpism. Yeah, such a good question. And just to pick up from where uh, Jack left off, what's so striking, you know, about Orban's no change philosophy and, you know, Trump's uh, make America great again, is that they're actually engaged in completely radical change in the moment. You know, if you look at the U.S. now compared to the U.S. before Trump came to power, it's a really transformed country. And the same is true with Orban. So the no change, you know, masquerades or, or at least hides, you know, what's really kind of fundamental undermining of democracy. Now, what both Trump and Orban do is they they make reference to a kind of mythical past when things were better. And they have to invent that mythical past. You know, so a lot of what they're doing is rewriting history, trying to make the the winners turn out to be right. their supporters of that history. And so in that sense, I hear the echoes of, uh, of Orban and Trump really going in the same direction. Hmm. Well, when we come back, we're going to learn more about Viktor Orban's rise to power uh, in Hungary and what he has done there um, in his leadership. So stand by. We'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode featured a debate about ESG, or environmental social governance. This sounds like more work than just putting your money into a social impact fund. It's a lot more work. Yeah. Anybody who thinks there's an easy solution here is either engaged in puffery, greenwash, or deceiving themselves. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're taking a deep and detailed look at the state of democracy in the European nation of Hungary. And why? Well, ever more political scientists and historians and scholars of democracy say if you want to know what direction the United States might head in, look at the authoritarian march going on in Hungary now. And in fact, some of the links are pretty striking. For example, a little over a year ago in Rome, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban was invited to speak before an audience of American conservatives at the Edmund Burke Foundation's National Conservatism Conference. He was very warmly received. And here, Orban explains why he thinks it's easier for him in Hungary than for Donald Trump in the United States to assert nationalist values in Hungary. We have very much similar leftist opposition than 
President Trump have, has, definitely. But somehow the Hungarian attitude is different, you know. Um, there is a saying in the Hungarian politics that the nation cannot be in opposition. Uh, even if you are in opposition, you have to serve the nation. So therefore, therefore, I'm not an expert in America, but if I understand correctly the American politics, uh, many people hate more Donald Trump than love their own nation. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban speaking to an audience of American conservatives at the Edmund Burke Foundation's National Conservative Conservatism Conference last year, or a little over a year ago, I should say. I'm joined today by Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, and Kim Shepley, Professor of Sociology and International Affairs at Princeton University and author of the forthcoming The Frankenstate, How Orban Undermined Democracy and Provided a Model for the World. And Professor Shepley, I actually think it's important for us to have a sort of a agreed-upon set of facts about Viktor Orban's political path itself. So I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of a pocket history uh, of his rise to power, because Hungary got a new constitution, a post-communist constitution in, in 1989. Uh, not long after that, you worked at the Hungarian Constitutional Court until 1998. And if I under, remember correctly, Orban first became prime minister just a couple of years after that in 2000. So can you tell us a little bit more about sort of who he is and how he rose to power? Yeah. So the first thing to say is that, you know, Orban was um, just past university when the wall came down and he sort of shot to fame in Hungary because he was one of the speakers at this giant sort of uh, rally um, for, uh, you know, when 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 it was sort of clear that politics in Hungary was changing. And he took to the microphone and he called for Soviet troops to withdraw from Hungary, which looked incredibly brave at that time. And it kind of catapulted him onto the national scene. He had already founded this political party called Fides, in which he's been, you know, really the only leader. And at the time of the transition, Orban and his colleagues all portrayed themselves as libertarians you know, it was a young party. It was a it was a party that called for throwing out everything communist, and they went into the first free and fair elections. You know, with this kind of branding, and they did pretty well uh, in 1990. The problem is, by 1994, the luster had gone off that particular brand, and Orban's party didn't do so well. So when he was in opposition, he remade the party. He purged it of all the libertarians and took this sharp, hard turn to the right. And so by the time of 1998, when there was another national election, his party actually came in first. So he was prime minister in 2000, but he actually became prime minister in 98, 98 to to 2002. But he had to govern in coalition. Mm. So there were lots of signs during those four years that if he were left to govern alone, he might be dangerous. But because he governed in coalition, he didn't do anything that was as radical as he probably would have wanted. So then he was defeated in 2000, and he was defeated again in 2006. And while he was in opposition, he created a whole network of what were called civic circles to kind of boost his popularity throughout the country and support his political party. So that by the time of the election in 2010, and by the way, Hungary experienced the financial crisis. It was under a caretaker government. It was under an IMF austerity program. By the election of 2000, Orban looked like the only sane and sensible candidate running in that election. And he won. And he won with with uh, a bare majority of the vote. But he got, he got 67% of the seats in the parliament. Mm in a system in which a single two-thirds vote of the parliament could change anything in the constitution. Uh And it was that lineup that gave him the legal power to do what he's done, and that is to shut down Hungarian democracy. Okay, And also to prevent himself from ever losing an election again. Okay, so uh, we're... Wow. That is actually an incredible analysis, Uh, Kim. So just hang on here for a second, because I want to probe some some parts of it uh, a, a little bit here. First of all, uh, when you say that or it sounds like Orban's political ideology um, has shifted radically from the from the late 80s to now. So can you can you identify a coherent political um, ideology that he has or, or is there none at all? So uh, to some extent, you know, the public platform of his party 
could not be more different. You know, freedom from it for everybody, for freedom for nobody. But there is this kind of link, which is that Orban still believes in freedom for himself. <laughs> and so he refuses to be constrained by any law. It's like a libertarian fantasy, right? That anything about the state can be changed to suit your own personal will. So in that sense, Orban, I think, hasn't really changed. You know, it's a it's a bit like after the Russian Revolution and Lenin realized the world was not going to be, you know, entirely communist. So Lenin developed this theory of communism in one country, which led to everything we saw in the Soviet Union. Orban has developed this theory of libertarianism in one person, mm. right, which is that he's the only one who can operate completely without constraint. Right. Well, Jack Beatty, do you hear echoes there uh, between Hungary and the United States? Well, uh, we have on the authority of Steve Bannon, who apparently is has connected to Orban as an advisor, that uh, Orban was Trump before Trump, which is which is frightening. I, I am connecting with this view of sort of um, auto uh, libertarianism, mm-hmm. for surely that that describes Donald Trump: his freedom from moral constraints, uh, his freedom from even the lip service to conventional norms. Uh, is the most striking thing about him, and it's and it's it's as if he's signaling to the uh, change-fearing voters in his base that he's free of of the of the of the inhibitions that uh, liberal society and a generally liberal society imposes, and that there'll be he, he, he'll do whatever he wants, presumably for them but mostly for himself. But that doesn't seem to bother his people because it is a defiance of the, you know, what we learned in college, the liberal, polite, respectful, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multiracial democracy. No, no, no. It's mm. a rejection of that in style. Right. So, so Kim Shepley, tell, tell us more about those civic circles that you talked about that uh, Orban formed between 2006 to 2010, almost, if I could use the phrase, almost like his interregnum uh, uh, between his moments of ascending to, to leadership in Hungary. Because, look, I mean, we to state the obvious, Donald Trump is not president right now. He is not president of the United States, but he is still arguably the most potent force in the Republican Party. As we mentioned before, the GOP is very strongly consolidating around Trumpism. So what lessons or parallels or even differences do you see between what Orban did when he wasn't in power and what's happening with the GOP and Trumpism now? Yeah, this is where I think we have the scariest parallels. So Orban, when he was out of power, had a two-pronged strategy. One was that he purged his party of of everyone who wasn't personally loyal to him. So he built a party that was just lying in wait for an election when the main sort of left parties would be weak. And that's what happened in 2010. And of course, in the US, we have a two-party system. So you know, you can't wish for one party to stay in power forever. One day, the Republicans will come back. And the question is what the party looks like. And if it looks like Orban's Fidesz party, where it's really designed to support one person or to support a kind of a strong man at the top, then you'll be in some danger. But there's also what the other thing that Orban did with these civic circles was that he he engaged in a kind of mass mobilization of civil society. And he did it a lot through the Hungarian churches. He mobilized their members. Um, he got them all on board. They already had a pre-existing structure. He was mobilizing the kind of religious Hungarian middle class. And through doing that, he developed a very reliable base for his own party by feeding them sort of a lot of, um, you know, lines, as I mentioned, you know, rewriting Hungarian history, developing a certain version of civic patriotism, developing a kind of intolerance for multiculturalism and laying the groundwork for what became the kind of Fidesz platform when Orban came back to power. So you see that kind of thing happening now with the Republican Party. Right. It's alliance with the evangelical movement. It's alliance with, you know, other groups that sort of foment uh, and the, you know, the militia movement and all of these, you know, Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and so on. Um, 
And so all of that means that in addition to the Republican, Republican Party organization, you've got a whole civil sector that is mobilized to bring autocracy back. Hmm. Well, Hungary is a parliamentary uh, system of government. So ostensibly, there is fairly accurate representation in parliament of what uh, what the Hungarian people want. So I wonder, where was the opposition during all of this? Where is the opposition? Such a good question. So first of all, uh, yes, it's a parliamentary system. And one of the weaknesses that we have in Hungary that fortunately we don't have in the U.S. is that um, basically a single two-thirds vote of a unicameral parliament could change the constitution. So, you know, there's a lot more barriers to constitutional change uh, in the United States, which can act as a bit of a, of a buffer. But the difference is that, you know, the election laws in Hungary um, after about 2000 didn't really match what the political system looked like. Essentially, the election laws were designed to give a boost to whichever party got the most votes. And there was sort of a six-party system. So that meant that you were boosting a plurality party into a majority, usually. But by the time of the 2010 election, there were functionally two parties or two and a half parties. There was a kind of neo-Nazi party in addition to the kind of you know organized left and when that happens, the, the election laws catapulted Orban's bare majority into this two-thirds vote. And he since rigged the election rules. And this mm. is really crucial. This is what I must say really scares me about what's happening in the U.S. now. We already have a bias in favor of sort of minority parties winning elections. Um, the Electoral College sees to that in the presidency, gerrymandering sees to that in the House and the rules for the Constitution of the Senate ensure that a minority of the public will be represented with a majority of the senators. So we have a lot of biases in the U.S. system in favor of minoritarian rule. What Orban did was to was to make it possible for him to keep coming back as prime minister, winning less and less of the popular vote. So he's ne Orban's never had a majority uh, of, pu of public opinion in his favor, just like Trump. And yet he keeps winning these two thirds votes in the parliament, which gives him the power to change the Constitution from morning to night. And that's all through electoral manipulation both voter suppression, but also through capturing the electoral machinery, mm -hmm. which is exactly what's going on here now. In fact, I'm very worried that we will not be able to have free and fair elections in the United States, and that will take us down the road of Orbanism. Jack, I mean, you've sounded the same alarm uh, about what you your concerns about what might happen as soon as next year here in the United States. Yes, yes, and I'm reading in one of these articles about uh, Orban, our friend Steve Levitsky, who was on that program you alluded mm -hmm. to just a bit ago, one of those hundred scholars who uh, signed the document warning of these dangers. He's quoted as saying, I'm terrified. I think the Republicans are going to steal the next election. Well, <laughs> he's a student of, uh, of what he calls competitive authoritarianism. That is uh, not quite a dictatorship. It's competitive because there still are elections, but essentially authoritarian. Does that, does that rubric, uh, Kim, fit the Hungarian situation? Absolutely. And so actually, um, you know, there are all of these kind of ratings agencies for governments, the most popular of which is something called the Varieties of Democracy Project. And they just in last year lowered Hungary from the status of semi-consolidated democracy to the status of an electorally competitive regime, hmm. uh, electorally authoritarian regime, sorry, exactly the, the concept that Levitsky invented. So what does that mean? It means that you go on having elections. It means you go on looking like a democracy as far as outsiders are concerned. But there's never any doubt about who wins those elections. And there's absolutely no chance that power will rotate, which means you've, you've disconnected the government from any base of democratic support. And that's happened in Hungary. And again, you know, given the tremendous focus of the Republican Party on changing the rules of the game here, I think we are in real danger of that happening here as well. Well, I want to, there's so much to discuss here, Jack and Kim, <laughs> but but let, I actually want to bring in the, the voice 
just briefly of a, a former Hungarian politician, Gabor Schiering, who was elected to the Hungarian parliament in 2010, just as, as we've been learning, as Orban, uh, the Orban regime was getting established. And we asked him what it was like to be an opposition MP in Hungary in those days. Well, as an opposition MP between 2010 and 14, your uh, most important experience was that there is a wall uh, separating you from every kind of decision making. So there was no way at all to influence what was happening. Viktor Ban has built up such a well-functioning and efficient machinery of power that no matter what you did inside or outside a parliament, uh, you felt almost as powerless as a regular citizen. So Gabor Schiering, a uh, former Hungarian MP. Kim Shepley, I do, I do also wonder, though, whether the Hungarian opposition uh, has to bear some responsibility here. Because just uh, today in the New York Times, Slavoj Žižek, a philosopher, was quoted in the Times saying that part of the problem in, in terms of the, the rise of uh, populist governments, especially in Europe, is uh, excessive moralism from, from the left and a left that's actually in disarray and not focusing enough on economic concerns that voters are focused on. Did that happen in Hungary? We just got about 30 seconds before the break. Yeah. So the opposition was divided between a lot of small parties that were more concerned with winning points against each other than fighting Orban for a while. But that's changed. Um, the opposition in Hungary has its act together. It's going to run as a single ticket against Orban. And so it actually now in the opinion polls looks like it might actually have more popularity than Orban. So the division of the opposition is a thing of the past. The question is whether Orban will let them win even if they have a majority. Uh-huh. So the question of being distracted by culture wars maybe isn't now the most urgent question because of the constitutional changes in Hungary. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about maybe some of the differences between the United States and Hungary. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. Hi, On Point listeners. I'm poet and author Shinyi Pai. As you celebrate Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I invite you to listen to the 10,000 Things podcast from KUOW and the NPR Network. 10,000 Things is a podcast about modern artifacts of Asian American life, ordinary objects that tell extraordinary stories and reveal something profound about the experience of being Asian in America. Find 10,000 Things from KUOW and the NPR Network wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we are taking a close look at the European nation of Hungary, because many scholars of democracy and history say if you want to know what might happen in the United States a little bit down the line regarding the strength or fragility of our democracy, take a look at what's happening to Hungary now uh, as it marches very clearly toward authoritarian rule. I'm joined today by Jack Beatty, he's On Point's news analyst. Kim Shepley is also with us. She's a professor of sociology and international affairs at Princeton University and author of the forthcoming book, The Frankenstate, How Orban Undermined Democracy and Provided a Model for the World. She worked on the Hungarian Constitutional Court for several years in the 1990s, lived in and visited Hungary 
many for many years. And in fact, Kim, before we get to exploring some of the differences between um, Hungary and the United States in terms of um, the depth and strength of their relevant their relative democracies, I actually just wanted to hear a little bit from you about your personal experiences with. Viktor Orban. Um, if I have this right, you've, you've even spent some some time with him. Um, and what these days, when you get off the plane in Hungary, you have what extra company when it comes to police following you, things like that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So first of all, Hungary is a small country, and it's not as difficult as it is in a big country like the U.S. to meet people in the political elite. And I. I was, uh, as you said, working at the Constitutional Court as a researcher on NSF grants from the United States um, from 94 to 98. And during that time, I taught a course in comparative constitutional law out in Ukraine, this Hungarian part of Ukraine. And while I was there, Orban and his entourage showed up from the parliament as they were trying to craft their new nationalist message. They were trying it out first on Hungarians in the neighboring states. And so I recognized Orban from television. I walked up to him in the lobby of the hotel and, and you know, asked if I could tag along as his uh, group from the parliament was trying out these messages. And he kind of let me tag along for a few days. So that was how I met him. And I, I must admit, this was in 1995, just as he's pivoting from being a libertarian to being a nationalist. And and I remember coming back from that trip and saying to my friends in Budapest, I've just met the most dangerous person that I've ever seen in person. <laughs> and they all said, oh, it's Victor. He just lost an election like he's nothing. And what I could see in him was that his mind is like a tractor beam. You know, it's the kind of thing that people say about like Bill Clinton or to some extent Barack Obama, where when you're talking to them, like you feel like there's nothing else in the world. Mm. Right. But you and them. And it's a kind of it's a kind of skill or talent that causes your brain to evaporate. Right. So I can see how so many people fell into Orban's um, orbit. Um, but now that I've become a critic, you know, I've uh, ever since Orban came to power, I mean, I, I don't really, I'm not involved in Hungarian politics from a, you know, I don't belong to a party, I don't vote and, or anything like that. But when Orban started crashing the constitution, which was the thing I cared about, I worked at the constitutional court, I started paying attention. And as I became a critic, the full power of the Hungarian state gets kind of unleashed on you. Rather, Marta gets it worse because she's actually living in Hungary most of the time. But, you know, first it started with death threats, and then it started with my being followed when I'd show up in the country. My Hungarian phone was tapped. And on my last visit, I was literally met at the plane door by five uniformed police who didn't say anything, didn't touch me, but just made a little circle around me as I waited for my suitcase at the airport and walked to the door of the airport, which was, I think, welcome to Hungary. And the government knows you're here. Um, so, you know, it's a little unnerving to know that they pay that much attention to when I'm in the country and to what I'm doing. But um, it's not going to stop me from saying what's happening there. Wow. Well, you mentioned Marta Pardavi, who we heard from at the top of the show, a human rights lawyer based in Budapest. Uh, we want to hear from her again a little bit because previously she was describing how Hungary has changed uh, over the past 20 to 30 years uh, under and under the rule of Viktor Orban. But we also wanted to know what she thought uh, is similar between Hungary uh, and the United States from her vantage point in Budapest. And here's what she said. I see quite a lot of similarities between what is happening in Hungary or in many parts of Europe and what's happening in the U.S. when it comes to polarization. I also see similarities about the weakening of sort of mainstream conservative positions. Something that the extreme far right was talking about a few years back has become the middle of the road position for the Hungarian conservatives. And something like this can also be seen perhaps in the US. What we've seen in Hungary is that you can take a legal system and use it in a way that actually undermines your own democracy, your own legal system built on the rule of law. Whether this is a realistic risk for the United States is a different issue because you have a more intricate system of governance, right? You have states, you have the federal government, and there is no such domineering party in any of the houses of Congress. 
for many years, I think Europeans, particularly in Eastern Europe, looked to the U.S. as a as a model of a strong democracy. This is probably no longer true. The U.S. has never been perfect, but it was still much better than most. In the past few years, I think this illusion has been shattered. So the U.S. can no longer perceive itself as a perfect role model. For other citizens around the world, the question is, where do you look then for a model democracy? That's human rights lawyer Marta Pardavi, head of the Hungarian Helsinki Committee in Budapest. Uh, Kim, first of all, just briefly re- reflect on, um, on on what Marta says there. She does see some similarities, but sees some particular differences too. And she and she noted that just the structure of the United States government that we do have a two party system here rather than a multi party system. So ostensibly. Um, there's always a a well-funded, long-established opposition party, regardless of you know who's in the White House or who who's who controls Congress here in the U.S. Does that provide uh, a, a better buttressing to protect democracy than what we've seen in Hungary? Uh, well, that's such a good question, and the answer is yes and no, right? So, the good thing about having a well-organized opposition party, as there is in the United States. Um, is that it can, at the moment, sometimes win elections and sometimes roll back some of the changes you get under an autocratic government. The bad news is that having a two-party system is like walking on two legs. You know, eventually you can't hop forever. You're going to have to step on the other foot. And if you've got a party that is committed to undermining democracy, which really the Republican Party, it's no longer a conservative party. I think Marta's point about weakening mainstream conservatism is absolutely right. The Republican Party is devoted to the goal of keeping itself in power forever. So you have one party committed to small d democracy and the other party not. And in a two-party system, that's really, really, really dangerous. Mm. Um, We might also add that one thing that Orban did was to try to bring the courts into line so that they couldn't tell him that what he was doing was illegal. And we've seen this massive shoveling of, you know, conservative judges, many of whom don't really have the credentials to be judges, onto the bench in the United States as well, you know, including the Supreme Court, to the point where it's not so clear that the courts are actually neutral in the political space anymore. And so those things worry me a lot. And these changes in election law, which make it more likely that Republicans will come to power, we're entering a new season of gerrymandering, for example, Mm -hmm. after the census, which was also a botched census. So there are lots and lots of danger signals to say that the things you think of as protections in the U.S. constitutional system will soon turn out to be liabilities. Hmm. Well, Jack, let me um, benefit from your deep historical knowledge here, because I also note that Hungary is a relatively young democracy. And given what Kim has told us this hour, I'm going to put democracy in quotes now uh, for, for Hungary, because we're talking 1989 to the to the present day and and prior to that 50 years under communism whereas the united states has a multi-century old democracy here that has been challenged multiple times for sure but um is there something to the duration um and the and the different experiences that we've had here with democracy in the united states that can provide a a a, a better uh more strength more durability well, you would hope so. You would hope that sheer habit, that that the you know acceptance of the rules. But look what happened in the last election. Trump lost. He said he won, and the whole party is now building itself around that lie. Uh, that's a that's a that's a rebuff to the whole of American history. That's to say, all of that stuff is just uh, you know about loyal opposition and accept the will of the voters. No, no, we have new rules in America. So I don't know how far the American past is prologue uh, mm. to the future. What I do know, or what I fear, is what uh, some social scientists uh, on a paper on globalization called the ubiquity of loss, the sense that in the late industrial experience is one of omnipresent loss and decline, namely the sort of capitalist, industrialist, technological force of insecurity that has to be 
behind the, the populist backlash here, there, around the world, the sense of people's lives being insecure and being made insecure by this by this whirligig of uh, of change that has brought that of, of which the, the, the social scientists speak of a, a sense of ubiquity of loss that people mm. feel. Well, Kim, is that is that a similar th- thread in Hungary as well? Uh, yeah. So, you know, I think people forget, you know, in the in all the joy of the Berlin Wall coming down, how hard the 90s were across the post-communist world as as there were these abrupt transitions as people's lives were ripped up. And there were a set of people who felt like they lost a lot in that process, including Orban and his followers from the countryside. And so this is a kind of payback against the people who won. And a lot of what Orban is doing is trying to recover those losses by taking away the gains from the parties that won at that time. So yes, there's that background. But it seems to me that there's also, um, you know, something going on here that we tend to think of Hungary as a new democracy and therefore that it just didn't get good at it yet. Mm. But what Hungary had going for it was exactly what Marta said, right, which was sometimes people who have experienced dictatorship are more protective of democracy than the people who take democracy for granted. Mm. And Hungary did have a very vibrant democratic and constitutional space. It was a strong democracy, even if it was new. In fact, it was stronger perhaps because it was new and people realized that it could disappear. What worries me about the U.S. is that we believe that, you know, we have a constitution written by geniuses that has brought us down to the present moment. But if you, we have an outdated constitutional framework, you know, our checks and balances rely on the thought that the Senate will defend the prerogatives of the Senate and the House will defend the prerogatives of the House and ditto with all the other branches. But the constitution was written before there were political parties. And now what we're seeing is something more like a parliamentary system of government in which the Republicans across all of the different branches of government, including, by the way, down into the state houses and state legislatures, are operating as a single block where their institutions are not checking each other, right? Mm -hmm. And ditto with the Democrats. So the kinds of checks built into our constitutional system don't work when you have parties working across institutional barriers and they no longer protect the prerogatives of their institutions. So the U.S. constitutional system is extremely vulnerable right now. And I don't think we should think that our institutions are old and therefore vibrant. Our institutions are old and therefore a bit rotted out from mm. the inside. Mm. Well, it's so fascinating that you mentioned state and local government as well, because I was actually going to point to that as a potential source of, of strength for U.S. democracy because of the variegated nature of um, places in which there is power, not just in Washington, but across the country. I would also still point to the courts for now as still being a, an independent branch of government that's willing to push back against um, uh, authoritarian leanings coming out of the executive. Um, of course, we, we could talk about how maybe that's changing with, um, you know, given who who's being put onto the courts and, and, and who's not being allowed to get onto the courts. But that's for, for another day. But, but Kim and Jack, we've just got two minutes left here, and I'm very eager to hear um, what you think our lessons are for Americans listening to this uh, and this fascinating exploration we've had of of what's going on in in Hungary which Kim you're sounding you're making it sound like it's a democracy in name only now so you know regarding the press in the United States does the press bear some responsibility here I mean it, it get, we get pretty distracted by some things that aren't necessarily the the undergirding legal apparatus that's being changed in the United States you know what about the Democratic Party what about American citizens what can what are the lessons here Kim I'll, I'll start with you go ahead yeah. So first of all, it's a it's a kind of hallmark of these autocrats that they try to distract the press. <laughs> and unfortunately, the press allows itself to be distracted, right? I mean, what will get, you know, click, what's clickbait, but, you know, the latest Trump tweet or the latest Orban outrageous statement. It's important, though, I think, for us all to keep our eye on the ball. What's happening to the democratic institutions that are supposed to protect us? So we need to look under the surface to ask, you know, do we have functioning institutions that can stop an autocratic push for power? And I'm worried about that in the U.S. I saw in Hungary that all of these institutions that I knew and loved and even worked within were captured so easily 
when the public was distracted by other things. And culture wars, however important and you know they are and however hateful the rhetoric is and everybody's got to respond, but the culture wars are very often a distraction from the kinds of checks and balances and important sort of guardrails um, on democratic processes that we need to keep intact for democracies to survive. Well, Jack, last 30 seconds, your, your last thought about lessons we should take away from this. Well, I suppose it's uh, to uh, to vary the, Sin- <laughs> the Sinclair Lewis uh, title. It can happen here. I mean, we're American complacency for decades is that oh my gosh, can't happen. It can, and under we've seen it happen in this nascent democracy. And as Kim suggests, our democracy may be uh, sort of long in the tooth and 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 vulnerable that way, uh, and vulnerable especially to this sort of moral nihilism that, that's, that's, that's driving, I think, a lot of this uh, rejection of the status right. quo. Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, always grateful to have you. Thank you so much. And Kim Shepley, professor at Princeton University and author of the forthcoming The Franken State. It has been absolutely phenomenal to hear you this hour. Thank you so very much. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. Can Profit Motive Save the Planet? Is a company that takes the climate into account a better investment? How about one that pays workers a living wage and champions transparency and board diversity? That's the idea of ESG, or Environmental Social Governance sounds like a wonderful story. You can make more money, you can save the planet at the same time. Almost no one is going to turn that down. It's a story that Andy King of Questrom and Veet Hennish of the Wharton School challenged during a recent event at Questrom. Professor King played the critic, who says these are problems for regulation to solve, not markets. As a famous economist said to me, you can't fix externalities with the profit motive, because the profit motive is not linked to externalities. Externalities are the byproduct of pursuing profits. So you can't fix them by getting people to even look harder at profits. Meanwhile, Veet emphasized that ESG can be an important part of the solution. Regulation matters, and we need better regulation. And we need to reallocate trillions of dollars of capital over time to the climate transition alone for getting social justice, racial justice, and other ESG issues. We're going to need the profit motive for that. No government regulation is going to reallocate tens of trillions of dollars of capital alone. It's going to be investors who are looking at current government regulation and future government regulation and trying to connect the dots. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets and Society at ibms.bu.edu. 